We'd like to thank our friends at Sleep Number for sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. Sleep Number is changing the way we sleep with their latest beds, the Sleep Number 360 Smart Beds. They automatically adjust on each side to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Discover the difference at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Hello and welcome to the Thrive Global Podcast on iHeartRadio. And welcome to everybody who is with us for this special live edition. And thank you so much to our podcast partners, iHeartRadio, as well as Sleep Number, with its amazing leadership in sleep innovation that has been our exclusive sponsor and partner for the podcast since the beginning. Because, of course... A good life begins with a good night's sleep. So Sleep Number is actually opening its first store in Manhattan this summer, right in the Flatiron District, and we're going to be letting you know more details as soon as we have them. My guest today is the one and only Elaine Welterworth, former editor-in-chief of Teen Vogue, where she was the youngest ever editor in the 107-year history of Condé Nast. Before taking that title, she was the first black beauty director in Condé Nast history, and before that, she was at Ebony. She is now continuing to use her voice by working across multiple media platforms. These days, she's everywhere, from covering the red carpet from me for the Oscars, which was amazing. I don't know if any of you saw her to doing an enormous amount of uh, socially conscious work, including a great documentary of the Parkland survivors. And she'll tell us about everything, including, of course, does she sleep with her phone, what's her relationship with technology, etc., etc. But I want to start with what you are doing right now, the post-teen um, Vogue life. And especially to start with the way you see your life as a mixture of everything, from activism to fashion. So tell us how you see that incredible melange. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. This is so surreal. I could also listen to you like read the alphabet. Your, your accent is so beautiful. Um, so the post-Teen Vogue life, the, the graduation from Teen Vogue has been glorious. I feel like I have a glow um, because I listened to my instincts and I had a bigger dream that was blossoming and I had the courage to take a leap and go for it. And so I think there's no better feeling than to be right where you're supposed to be. Oprah has this quote that your purpose, or if you can align your passion um, with your purpose, no one can stop you. And I've always used that as sort of uh, a guiding mantra for my career. So yeah, so I'm doing a lot of work from you know TV writing, reading scripts in TV and film. What I learned about writing for TV for Gronish that I feel like it was my freshman crash course in sort of the Hollywood space, and I realized, okay, I actually think I, my best position in the in that world is being a producer. So I'm moving in that direction, and I'm reading different scripts, all content that speaks to young people, that amplifies the voices of young diverse people who have really interesting stories to tell. And then also doing some non-scripted work, taking on projects with Netflix and, um, and EELB at the Met Gala. But also I worked with ABC Nightline and also Freeform on this sort of first of its kind 60-minute uh, special documentary that goes a little deeper into the stories of some of the survivors from Parkland, some of the survivors who we don't often hear from who aren't necessarily on the cover of Time. So it's been, it's been, really, it's been really, really exciting. You know what it is? In a word, it feels like liberation. I get it. And also, I love what you said in describing the post-teen Vogue chapter of your life as activating the audience that you galvanized. Mm. So tell us what that means, because I just love the sound of it, don't you? You can just imagine it said to country music. (laughs) (laughs) That is so funny. Um, well, I think when I was, you know, I think that the idea of activating the community that we were galvanizing at Teen Vogue was really important to me and why I brought the vision of Teen Vogue Summit to life, which we did in December. And it was sort of this 
amazing culmination of all the work that we'd done as a team to really clean up our community and build this new network of socially conscious, um, politically active young people who care about the world and wanted, wanted to meet other like-minded individuals who also wanted to change the world. I mean, I have chills even just thinking about it because, first of all, every single speaker that I wanted to come speak to this generation came from Hillary Clinton to Ava DuVernay. Like, selfishly, Ava's my icon, so I was basically just inviting her so I could sit with her. And, um, and it worked. And afterwards, she was like, Elaine, you should come to my house house and have coffee. And I was like, oh my God, I manifested this. This is amazing. But beyond that, it was, re- it was the most rewarding experience to see in real life these young people that I knew I entrusted that they existed all along when we built, when we kind of ch- changed the direction of Teen Vogue, but to see them up close, to see them connecting with each other, to see them like some of them were making like feminist groups like they were making, they were like, Elaine we're going to actually just take this thing thanks for doing this, but we're actually going to do this locally now and we're just going to, I'm like go for it, change the world, like it was it was so inspiring for everyone who was there so, you know, and I do think the future of content and the future of any brand is in the experiential space. I think we are seeing this pendulum swing from uh, a gross sense of disconnection to each other, to humanity, to really wanting to connect in real life, touch and feel and have conversations and to look into someone's eyes. And I just think there's no replacement for that. So with anything that I do, it's really about enhancing that human connection and um, deepening the conversation and trying to bring something of substance. And are you finding, as you are trying to enhance the human connection, that also means helping young people disconnect from being so increasingly hooked on social media? (sighs) Well... I'd like to say that I'm the poster child for like a digital detox movement, but unfortunately, like I have to, I feel like I'm about to turn myself into the pre- to the principle, like to the pre- the peace principle. Um, I have a huge addiction to my phone that I am struggling with. I'm Elaine, and I'm addicted to my <laughs> cell phone, and I think I'm not alone, right? Like, who's addicted to their cell phone? Don't oh, really just gonna leave me out there like that? All of you? Okay, fine. You're devotees of this woman, so maybe you've already gotten over that hump. But um, I am working on it. I recognize the value of really creating boundaries around this relationship that we all have with our cell phones um, and technology in general. And I've actually been really inspired by young people like Amanda Stenberg, who is a thought leader for the next generation, who has given up the iPhone, the smartphone, altogether. She quit using those phones and decided to get a flip phone instead that only, get this, that only makes phone calls. I was like, phones still do that? When my phone rings, I'm like shocked. I'm like, that still happens? Like I only text and I only email. I only do social media. So I feel like actually offended when people call me without an appointment. I'm like, what? Um, But Amanda uses her iPad. She gives herself limited blocks of time where she uses the iPad so she knows for instance that she can't bring an iPad to a party and like be cool so she only uses uh, social media on her iPad which is usually stashed at home um, and she's not often home and I just thought what a responsible way to take charge of your life and your peace and your mental health. And so I'm inspired by her, and she talks a lot about the benefits of doing that. And she's really a wonderful role model for sort of living on and off the grid. Like, she is she is as present in, on social media as she needs to be to continue to grow her, you know, her, her presence and to share the work that she's doing and to connect with her audience. But she also has very firm boundaries. Like, she's not overexposed. And I think there's this idea that you have to share everything and you have to be always on in order to be relevant or to be effective or successful. And I just think that this next generation is probably, as I see them, they're going to be sort of leaders in helping us move away from that idea. I I love what you said. And I see you as such a leader, too, because it does start with acknowledging that we have a problem. If you think of it, (laughs) uh, no, if you think of it, I mean, that's how it started with me. You know, I acknowledged I had a problem. I'm a work in progress. Incidentally, I don't think there is anybody who's completely 
conquered this because we're swimming in it. We're swimming in a culture um, that um, expects us to be always on, that uh, valorizes people who are always on, return texts immediately, etc. So it is an act of rebellion <laughs> to do it another way and to learn from each other. So that, that's how I see it. And I really see you as a leader in this because it doesn't mean not being on social media. It doesn't mean not doing any of these things. It just means doing it intentionally. But also, as you have so many... Um, I wanted to say young women. Obviously, you are a young woman, but even younger women who admire you. It can be such a role model. Have you thought of that, of how you can role model a certain behavior? Because right now, uh, um, anxiety and depression are really growing exponentially among teenagers. And um, have you thought of what you can do? I don't want to put the entire burden of this generation <laughs> on your shoulders. <laughs> I accept it. <laughs> um, you know, I have always been really thoughtful about how I show up on social media and how I just show up in the world in general. I think that being the first makes you think differently about your opportunity to come at something from a different perspective, to do things differently, to disrupt the status quo. And when I had the opportunity to step into a role where I, I was suddenly um, in a more public space than I had been prior, and in a space that no one who ever looked like me had ever been, I felt like I would be doing a disservice to that community and to all the young girls who need representation and don't have it to assimilate and to shrink and to be somebody that I'm not or to just follow the rules if that's not who I really am. And it's really not who I am. So I've learned to embrace my own authenticity, to listen to my instincts and to let that guide me. And I do that on Instagram, I think, and on social media. I do not post anything. I like. I don't like to post selfies. Like I just don't. I think. I think I don't look good in selfies. I feel. I feel a little silly, like sitting there doing something. So I just don't post them. And I also think that, you know, I don't shame anybody on social media for how they interact and how they share their their life. But for me, it's got to feel natural. It's got to feel like me. For me, social media has just become like this digital photo album. And growing up. I was obsessed with photo albums. I would like come home and collage, and I was obsessive about my photo albums. I would bring my friends over to my house to show them my photo albums. I would make like um, sections for different friends and like capture their essence on my pages. And my mom would be like, "Go to bed," and I'm like, "I'm I'm asleep," but I'd be under the covers with my flash, like obsessing over my pages. And I look back and I'm like, "That was my magazine, and that was my Instagram before Instagram." You know, like the idea of being able to curate visuals and words to evoke an image or you know, to, to evoke a story um, or an inspiration for you is something I've all, it's just always been who I am. So now that there's Instagram stories, I'm just like, I love sharing the life that I'm living and, and really for my own amusement, to be honest. At the end of the day, I love nothing more than just looking at my own story and laughing in bed and like asking my fiance if he watched today and if he didn't, I'm like, you better watch this with me. This is good content. Um, <laughs> But I think like that level of like joy and freedom and authenticity and expression, like using or rather using social media as a form of expression has made it so that it's not a burden to me. It's not something that I feel like I'm a slave to or like I really take that seriously or like I you know need to maintain this stature of role model for those who are watching me. Like I'm just me. And I have fun with it. And when I have something that's inspiring me, something that's irking me, some work that I'm proud of, it's such a great platform to be able to share it and then to get on with my work and to get on with my life. You know, I sort of give myself a certain amount of time. Sometimes it takes a long time to write a caption. <laughs> BT dubs. <laughs> like, way too long. So I've had to start putting myself on strict, like, deadlines. <laughs> like, you have this much time to get that done and move on. But yeah, I think I'm, I have to make sure that I'm good and that whatever I'm posting is true to where I actually am. And if ever I feel like I've become like the person who's just scrolling incessantly, I'm like, cut it off, cut it off. Because it's just inevitable that I won't feel as good once I put that phone down. I have too much important work to do in the world to allow illusions and other people's highlight reels to 
distract me. And I think it can be a distraction if you're not careful. Oh, it can definitely be a distraction. And also it can be a temptation to only show our own highlight reel. I was talking to a friend of mine um, who is actually a great technology reporter at CNN, and, and she was saying how... She had had a hard time. She had just broken up with her boyfriend. She went on a long hike um, where she was on vacation and she got vertigo. And she was fortunately, you know, helped down by two friends. And then she posted a picture of herself with her suitcase, kind of like having a great time. And then she thought, that's not good. And uh, she's actually now, you know, looking to do something about it. So it happens to everybody, right? That the temptation to post, you know, the the great moments, the moments we're proud of, even if our heart is breaking or um, we are kind of crawling down a mountain. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, there's a fine line because... I think that there's some, there are some things that are sacred and there are some things that are just too personal to put on this platform. I think this platform wasn't really designed for certain things. And I've actually felt that conflict over time. I mean, I think especially being held up as someone who's the first to do something, who is celebrated as a role model, who's doing all this work for young people, I think sometimes it can, for me as a very transparent person, I've always been very, very transparent, I've felt a bit challenged by the fact that the only thing that so many people know about me is a headline and what can be captured in a highlight reel. And I feel this urge to to share more because I think I'm doing in some way a disservice to people who might be aware of me. And I think I, if you just scroll my Instagram, I make it look so good. I make it look so easy and it's not, and it hasn't been. And there have been extremely high highs, but there have been lows. And I think that is a part of the journey. That is a part of what it means to be, as Shonda Rhimes says, first, only indifferent. And unfortunately, in this culture that we live in, on the positive side, we rally around first. We cheer each other on on social media. And trust me, on some days, that will get you through. You know, that little kind of boost of there's someone out there who's rooting for me. I needed that today. You know, that's wonderful. But on the flip side, how are we raising up this next generation of female entrepreneurs who are going to be second or female leaders, bosses who are going to be second and third and fourth? What is the model for how to really move through these barriers that they will inevitably experience if they have no guidance. Like I I struggle with the idea of being a trailblazer or a boundary breaker if I'm not actually leaving signposts up along the way that say, that's normal, happened to me too, go left, don't go right, take a breath, (laughs) don't say anything, don't hit that send on that email, you know, just... And what's the format for that? It isn't Instagram. It isn't, surely isn't Twitter. So for me, it's actually that, that sense of, you know, Instagram's not for everything has led me to actually write a book. And I um, am working on that process now. And, I, and, and really my intention in, with writing this book is to share what I can't share on social media that I think people need to know and would actually, people who want to be a leader, who are women and who are look different, who have a different background, I think this is information that they need and their path would be brighter and lighter, hopefully, for having someone kind of break the silence and be honest about some of the things that you don't share in the highlight reel. I love that. And we all need that, um, wherever we are, at whatever stage of our lives. So I can't wait for your book. Okay, we're now going to take a quick break to share a sleep tip brought to you by our sponsor, Sleep Number, because sleep makes the difference for a thriving mind, body, and soul. Today's sleep tip is to remember to breathe. Counting out a few slow breaths is one of the techniques I use when I'm having trouble falling asleep. One such version, the 478 method popularized by Dr. Andrew Weil, is rooted in the ancient Indian practice of pranayama. I love its simplicity. You inhale quietly through the nose for four counts, hold for seven counts, and exhale with whooshing sound through the mouth for eight counts. Even if deep breathing 
light stretching or meditation don't immediately put you to sleep. They can help calm and relax you, which is both a necessary precursor to sleep and a technique you can use to reduce stress during the day. This sleep tip was brought to you by Sleep Number, the bed that knows you, senses you, and adjusts to you. Only at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. I'd love what you said about take a breath, because take a breath is kind of a metaphor for everything we do at Thrive. It's not just about take a breath and don't say that or don't send the email. It's also like take a breath to make the journey more sustainable and more enjoyable. So That's what I did in the car when I was stuck I know, in traffic I love on the way that. over here. Tell us about that. I love that. So she was stuck in traffic. Um, she was a little late, as you as you know. Have we all forgotten? I thought there would be a back door. And I walked in. I was like, hi, everyone. <laughs> um, but she made a choice while she was stuck in traffic to stay zen and not to go hard on herself and judge herself and stress about it. How did you do that? You inspired me. (laughs) How did I do that? I think that it was the intention. It was the idea that I want to come here and give you what you came for, which is me at my best and me present and me clear. And if I allow this hurdle to throw me off my course, I'm going to get here and I'm not going to be able to show up in my, in, my, in my fullest self. And that would be a detriment to the whole experience of why I even said yes to do this. So I just was like, trust the universe. You'll get there at the perfect time. Ariana hopefully will be forgiving. <laughs> She'll hug me like she did. She smiled at me and I felt like it's okay. Like this happens. It was raining coming from Brooklyn. And sometimes you just do have to be a little bit gentle with yourself. I'm not the greatest at that. Um, but I think having the intention is what's important. That is so great. And I hope you're going to write more about it in the book. It's the voice that especially we women have that I call the obnoxious roommate living in our head. Ooh. That you know, Move puts her us, out. Move her out. How do we give her an eviction notice? Well, that's it. Exactly. I think you gave her an eviction notice in the, in the car because you could have listened to her. Yeah. And it's a voice of justice judgment of why didn't you start earlier? Why didn't you know there was going to be traffic? You just do that a lot. I mean, listen, I can hear that voice. It was very intense, but fortunately now she only makes guest appearances in my head. So let's talk about other ways that you take a breath, like other ways that you recharge. Well, (laughs) one thing that I started doing about five years ago or so was meditating. Even if it's just once a week, I get into a zone when I work that is so intense that I sometimes forget to eat. I could go without water. I could stay up all night and it's like manic and I'm, and I get a lot of stuff done, but at some point you crash. And I, I remember working like that for years, really since I came out of the womb, my mom told me today, she gave, she called me cause I was stressing out. I was, I put an offer down on an apartment by the way, which is a whole stressful whirlwind and ultimately decided today I'm not going to go for the apartment. And that idea of reining it in and like when you're, I am someone who's so supercharged and I will run towards anything. I will sprint, you know, and I will make anything happen if I, ha- once my mindset to it. But sometimes it's like, but do I need to take on this challenge right now? Do I, is it the best thing for me? Is it the healthiest idea? And my mom was just like, sometimes you need to slow down. She's like, you know, you've been like this ever since you were born. She was like, when you were 10 months old, I remember you in that little walker stuck in the corner, just banging yourself into the corner, crying, like just angry because somebody, somebody get me out of this corner. I got things to do. And she said, you were 10 months old. She goes, you didn't have a tooth in your head, but you were surrounded by all these kids who were older than you walking around and you wanted to be one of those kids walking around. So I got you these cute little Reebok pink sneakers. I put them on your feet. She goes, you put them on, you tapped two times, and then you just took off walking. And she said, and you turned around and looked at me, gave me a side eye, like, took you long enough. Like, you could have given me these shoes a long time ago. I should have been walking months ago. Like, (laughs) and so it was such a funny visual and and metaphor for who I am and who I you know who I am still today um, and so I recognize the need to be intentional about catching myself and like 
winding it in a little. And so meditation helps me do that. And I found myself in my mid twenties, maybe early twenties where I came home from work one day and I had a, I mean, from the outside looking in perfect life, great career, boyfriend, all the things. And I came home, my roommate looked at me and she's like, why do you look so sad? And I was just like, because someone asked me what my hobby is and I can't think of a single thing that I like to do apart from work. Like, I actually don't know what I like. I don't even know what I like to eat because all I eat is peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and Top Ramen because it's all I can eat at work at my desk. And I don't even know, like, what my fa- I don't know what I like. So I realized I need to create boundaries with my work and I need to leave the office at least one day a week to go do something for me, just something, one thing for me. And so I decided to start going to this, a friend of mine invited me to this meditation class and um, the idea of sitting still and like settling my thoughts, I'm just like, this ain't gonna work for me. (laughs) Like the yogis and like those other people, but not for me, you know? But I sat there and it was a guided meditation and it was the first time something clicked and it worked quote unquote, it worked. And I felt like it's happening. Something is happening. And I could sort of almost start predicting where she was taking us next. Like if there was a a millennial pink bubble that I'm going to wrap myself in or whatever, I was like, it's already happening. And I already see the millennial pink bubble. Like before she said it, something's connecting. So I was like, this is my thing. I like this. And it's not sexy. There's no one from the fashion industry that comes. It's like a hole in the wall. And I loved that. I loved the obscurity of it. I loved that it was off the beaten path and the anonymity of it all. And then in the second half hour, they do what they call spiritual healing or cleansing. And these women will just come. They read your little note. You write what your intention is or what you're facing at the moment. And they do a form of Reiki. And then they sit next to you and give you a message that they felt from your energy, which, sorry if it sounds a little out there for those of you who may not believe in this stuff, but listen, it's powerful to have someone take the time to be that loving, to close their eyes and surround you with their loving presence and to pick up what is going on with you and to sit and talk to you about it. Like that alone brought me to tears and it reminded me to do that for someone else not don't do the reiki thing but just to sit look into someone's eyes and to say how are you really like really and to talk and every week I would go back and they would give me a message that was so ridiculously relevant to whatever I was feeling and going through at that moment and it's just become such a tool for reining myself in getting in touch with how I'm really doing and reframing my thoughts for that week. So I do it every Tuesday at 6.30 when I'm in New York and um, it, it completely changes the rest of my week. So I actually think to answer your earlier question, the reason I was able to not spin out and spiral when I was stuck in traffic is because I went to meditation yesterday. So I, I still have like, I'm full on that Zen energy. That's wonderful. What a real gift. I should take you there. We should go there on a date. Let's go. I don't normally date. bring people. I don't normally tell people about this, but I'm going to, I'm going to bring you as my VIP you guest. Know, I'm totally game <laughs> and I'll bring you some country music for All them. right, let's do it. <laughs> so let's now talk about sleep. Okay. Because you mentioned something earlier, which um, is something that we need to discuss. You said that you're with your fiance in bed. I'm in which trouble. Is, which is just fine. That's not a problem. And uh, you were showing him uh, the stories on your phone. So, do you sleep with your phone? Every night. Every night. Oh. And do you like, do you sleep with your phone like cuddled up with your phone or the phone on the nightstand or the phone under the pillow? Where mm, is the phone? Mm. We have lots of different positions, you know, that we like. <laughs> Sometimes I, you know, it's right under my face. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it's usually, you know, somewhere between like here and under my pillow. It's bad, I know. And you have actually given me my uh, own phone bed that I did use for a little while. But the problem is I can sleep through a hurricane and I need an alarm clock. I should just get an alarm clock, but my alarm clock is on my phone. And so when it was upstairs, I just wouldn't hear it and I would be late for work. And so I just had to bring it back down. 
So when your phone is um, um, next to you, under the pillow, wherever, if you wake up in the middle of the night for whatever reason, do you look at it? I never, ever wake up in the middle of the night. Like I said, I could sleep through a tornado. <laughs> so nothing can wake me up. So you just sleep through the night? Yes. And then the phone wakes you up in the morning. Yes. So first of all, after I'm gi- ten alarms, like I literally said, sometimes ten alarms, but so five first of all, average. I'm giving you an alarm clock. That's beautiful, vintage-looking. I know exactly what I'm getting you. <laughs> and once I give you the alarm clock, what are the chances, honestly, of you putting your phone in the little phone bed? You know, Thrive has these little phone beds that are really charging stations, but they look like beds, and you put your phone They're under so the cute. blankie, and you tuck it in, you say goodnight, <laughs> and you reconnect in the morning. So what are the chances you're going to use it, honestly? I love a challenge, Ariana. And now I'm being held accountable on po- a podcast in front of a live audience. Like, I better get it together. And I feel like I'll need to, re- like, report back to you on Instagram. So I will take that challenge because I know it would only help me if right. I just committed to it. I think for me and for probably a lot of us, accountability is key. So having someone to not only challenge me but then check in I think is key to breaking bad habits. Yes, I'll be, I'll be your uh, Thrive Tribe. All right, you know, let's you need, do Everybody it. needs a tribe member yeah. to hold us accountable. And what about your fiancé? How, how is he with technology? He's my CTO, unofficially. I am always like, CTO, why is my email not working? Help me with this, help me with that. He's great with technology, better than I am. I think he probably has a less dependent relationship to it than I do. He will every once in a while call me out, hold me accountable. Today I was on the phone with one of my girlfriends and I'm always multitasking. I'm always doing multiple things at the same time. I mean, aren't we all? It's really not the most effective way of moving. It's just not. But today I was on the speakerphone and sending an email and whoever was on the phone, my girlfriend said something and then she, she, I, there was this pregnant pause and she goes, oh, for God's sakes, Elaine, stop texting. She goes, you're so obvious. And I was like, oh, and then Jonathan heard, turned around and he goes, like, that's what I'm always telling you. And I was like, oof. So I felt a little bit of shame in that moment and realized I needed to get it, to, get it together. But yeah, he, he's, he's an accountability partner. So if I go home today and say, Ariana told me I have to put my phone upstairs, he will help me deliver. Okay, fantastic. That's a great challenge. I'll give you his phone number so you can check in. (laughs) Jonathan and I are in this together. Yes! (laughs) So, let's talk, before we abandon social media, I have one more question. Let's talk about the sort of negativity in social media. Like, how do you deal with it? Like, do you ignore it? Do you silence it? What's your response? I have to be honest. I have not experienced a lot of negativity on social media. I feel like I've created somehow this community of really supportive, positive, like-minded people who, you know, generally are just really supportive. Even, even on Twitter? I don't tweet a lot. And the things that I drop on Twitter are usually like quotes, inspiring quotes or things like that. I'm more of a stalker on Twitter. You know, I'm, I'm on it, but I scroll. I don't actually participate a lot in the cesspool that that becomes at times. I use it as an educational tool. So I actually feel like that I have a very healthy relationship to. But I have experienced in the past backlash from a story that we printed in Teen Vogue that was taken out of context. And people immediately found my byline and then found me on Instagram and sort of trolled me. And it was really hard for me because, again, the piece was taken out of context. And the intention behind the piece was actually to highlight the intersection between beauty and activism and how, like, as a black woman, the hairstyles that you choose to show up to work in can actually be powerful forms of activism. But the piece was taken out of context and it was actually picked up by the Daily Mail, UK Daily Mail, and the headline said, Teen Vogue publishes anti-black story. And I'm like, do they know that I'm black and that I wrote it? (laughs) And this was before, you know, anyone, you know, really in the, in the press really even had a sense of who I was. So I felt this need to take control of the narrative and right set it and, and make sure that people understood where I was coming from. And so first, of course, my feelings were hurt. And then I immediately engaged 
And through the engagement, which, by the way, everyone advised me against, they said, just let it die, you know, people will move on. And I'm like, I cannot sit still while people are perpetuating a false narrative. And I think that happens too much in this day and age where it's just a headline scrolling culture. You scroll on Twitter and you get the gist. You don't click through. You don't read the story for yourself. You don't form your own opinion. And I really wanted to challenge the people who had the audacity to come find me on my platform to send them back to actually read the story and understand the point of view with which it was written. And so in the comment section, the whole conversation, which started out very negatively, turned around. And it became this 180 that actually landed us in a place of understanding. And I'll explain a little bit. Basically, the model who, was, uh, who we cast for the story was actually biracial, like me. And it was a first-person story. But in the picture that somebody took and put on Twitter, there was the flash made her look like she was white. And so people thought that they, they saw this, what they perceived as a white girl, wearing braids. And they say, you know, Teen Vogue commits cultural appropriation again. Shame on them. So in the comment section, as people are, like, coming for me, uh, the model chimes in and says, for anyone who cares to know, I am black and French. Am I not black enough to wear braids? And it was just like, boom. And then suddenly people started to really go, ooh. And then I jumped in and I said, by the way, I'm black and German. Am I black enough to wear braids, but she's not? Let's talk about this. Let's get dig a little bit deeper. Like, black comes in all different colors, all different textures. And let's have a conversation. If the issue is about colorism, let's go there. Let's have a nuanced conversation about the implications of, of colorism and, and the, the bias that we possess, like the unconscious bias. But, and it, it turned around. People apologized. They said, I am so sorry. I should have taken a moment to read the story before I trolled you. And they apologized to the model. They said, sis, I, I, I can only imagine how hard it is for you as a brown, black woman in this competitive modeling landscape that does not necessarily uphold blackness, it must be so hard for you, and I, I can't believe that I was a part of making it harder. Please accept my apology. And the model chimed in, it's okay, thanks for responding. And it was just this beautiful arc that I was so happy to see hosted on my platform. And it just reinforced the idea that just because there's negativity, it does not mean that it's always meant to be ignored. Sometimes you can engage, enlighten, inspire, positivity that can like light can come out of the darkness that being said some things aren't even worth your time you know some things you do just let you just let it go this one wasn't one of those times I love that I love a positive story about negativity being transformed through engagement I just want to go back to the beginnings when you're graduating and you wanted to get an interview with the creative director of Ebony And you didn't just ask for an interview, but you mailed her a mock-up of your own magazine. (laughs) I was a geek and thirsty. (laughs) Tell us about that magazine and who was on the cover. Oh, my God. These are good interview questions. You dug deep into the Google for this information. I was on the cover because who else? I mean, it was my application for the job, right? So um, I was on the cover, and it was like, which role will she get? (laughs) <laughs> this is so embarrassing I've never right, talked about it I love that Have you ever seen a brown girl blush? Because it's happening right here, right now Exclusive Yeah, I put myself on the cover And I, I made um, a whole magazine I had a letter from the editor I had a table of contents I made fake ads I put my um, It was basically a little portfolio of my, of my work And, yeah, I went really hard for that internship. And I got it. And that was the beginning. That was the beginning. I love beginnings. And now you're at a stage where you're giving a voice to a generation that, as you've described it, really wants to ask the question and answer it, what do you stand for? Yeah. And um, so if I asked you that question, what would you say? I would say 
inclusivity and truth. And I think that my mission is to amplify the voices of marginalized people um, in spaces where they're underrepresented. I love that. So I just want to thank you so much for being here, for arriving in such a great Zen place. And um, we are right on time, right, <laughs> right on perfect universal time. Yes, aka CP time <laughs> <laughs> or Greek time, oh, G time too. We have this in common. Yes, huh? we're very much so. <laughs> and uh, I want to open it up to some questions from all of you here. And this is uh, somebody. I love Agape Stasinopoulos, my sister. Who hooked us up? Who hooked, she hooked us, us up. up? Yes, actually, it's so funny because I was talking to her about um, people I wanted to involve in Thrive and what we're doing. And I said, one of them is Elaine. And I started saying about that. And then literally, two days afterwards, Agape heard you speak at the Goop conference. And she came up to you and said, my sister really wants to meet you. And it happened. And her sister just so happened to be Ariana Huffington. <laughs> For the record, I would have met with your sister anyway. Oh. Well, um, first of all, both of you, thank you so much for this amazing, authentic conversation. I, and um, I fell in love with you when I heard you at Goop. I sort of leaped from my chair, kept texting Ariana, saying, she's here, she's amazing, she's amazing. And uh, I think your, your, not your middle name, your first name should be Authenticity. You are just absolutely, extraordinarily, refreshingly authentic in an incredible way. And I just uh, have two questions, Elaine, uh, that might help us all. It's like, first of all, what kind of a bringing did you have to become so, in a most wonderful, confident way, without being full of yourself, but being full of your soulfulness? You know, and you have a quote in your Instagram that says, don't be an eye candy, be a soul food, which I love. I just wanted to know a little bit about your mother or your father or how, what did they instill in you to become who you are? And the other thing is about love. You obviously have a beautiful fiancé and you seem to be uh, loving with each other and love each other. And in, in an age where people struggle with relationships and finding love and all these insane dating uh, apps and how people lose that intimacy, that connection, how did you meet him? Uh, so other people can go <laughs> find. And how do you find love? How did you manifest um, love in your life? Ooh, these are good questions. Come on, Oprah, in the front row. We could do a whole panel on just those two questions. I'll answer the second question first. How did I meet my fiancé? We actually grew up in the same church. It's called uh, South Bay Community Church in Northern California, a really small town, Fremont, California. And I've known him since he was 12 he had these huge glasses. He was a nerd with a capital N. And I was into bad boys. And I was really not checking for him at all. But I always remembered I loved his smile. I thought he was such a nice person. And he just made me feel safe. There were a lot of boys at that church. And I always felt very self-conscious around them. But not around him. And I remember coming back after moving to New York and bringing my New York boyfriend back to church. And Jonathan, I saw Jonathan make like a whole beeline to come say hi. And we always reflect on this because it's, it's so funny. My New York City boyfriend was here. Jonathan was here. And he didn't even acknowledge him. And he just talked to me like really close in my face and was just smiling that pretty smile. And I was sort of like, where did these shoulders come from? Like, I think he, I think he dropped those glasses and it was just like, Hmm. And I remember thinking like, he's going to make someone really, really happy. Like that's an upstanding man right there. And then flash forward a number of years, he ended up coming to New York to interview for a job and he found me on Facebook and he asked me if we want to you know, meet up for a drink or something. And we did. And it was just so refreshing. It felt like I was sitting with someone. By the way, I hadn't really known him. I just knew him in passing. But I felt like I was sitting with someone that was literally cut from the same fabric. It was refreshing. It was, it put me at ease. And I just liked myself around him. I felt funnier. And the thing is, I think the tables turned a little bit because I always joke with him. I was like, 
you always loved me. You always, I mean, come on. You had a huge crush. Come on, come on. And he's just like, not really. But I thought you were, I thought you were, you know, good looking. But I always, I was like, I'm out of his league, you know? And then when he came to New York and he was a grown man and he had shoulders <laughs> and all of that. And I had just come out of a relationship. And so I was like single, ready to mingle. And we had this great, great night together. And at the end, I was like, we're, we're really like, this is a thing. I'm feeling it. And he's like, nope. He had a girlfriend. He wasn't feeling anything. And I was sort of like, so it really actually reset our friendship to a friendship. And we built a foundation of just like knowing each other. And then it evolved into a romantic relationship. But I think what they don't tell you about love and dating and the guy that you marry is that the, I think the person you marry is the person who feels like home. It's not necessarily the person that you like pant over or you spiral out about. It's really the opposite. And, and so that's what I feel with him. And I would not, if I didn't go through all of the traumatic breakups that I've gone through with men who I did not feel at home with, but, but I was like striving to make it work. I was striving to like fit this square into the circle and, and I liked the image of it. And I, or there were things about it that were making me feel better about myself, like all of that stuff I needed to go through in order to land on the nice guy and appreciate him when he showed up. Um, anyway, and the other question about my, my parents is my, my mom, so my mom's African-American. My dad is this like hippie white guy. They're both musicians, but very different genres. Unfortunately, not country, Ariana. My mom is a gospel singer. My dad is, again, like a hippie, folky, like guitar player both really creative and and uh, my brother is a punk rocker and then there's me and I'm the only one who has no musical ability whatsoever but I can dance um, and I just think that for one I think you come here kind of how you are especially for my mom's stories of me clearly I was like a bat out of hell with a lot of energy from the very beginning and pretty independent <laughs> but I had parents both who never put any expectations or labels or pressure on me. Um, they really allowed myself and my brother to explore our identities and to not feel the need to fit in any boxes. So watching my mom, who's a gospel singer and much more conservative and, you know, dragged us to church every Sunday, deal with my brother's, like, black chipped nail polish and, you know, his green mohawk and, you know, his, like, rancid jacket that had, like, safety pins all over it, like watching them negotiate that every Sunday showed me it was, it was the epitome of grace and acceptance and love. And my brother got teased a lot for being so different. You know, like he was this black punk rocker, this like biracial, like not black enough, not white enough, didn't fit into any box, but my parents always had his back. It was such great education for me. For me, I just think that they, they're the kind of parents who are so accepting. Like, if I, if I worked at a bowling alley, they'd be like, are you happy? If you're happy, we're proud of you. And that's it. So I, I, I don't feel any pressure to perform for my parents' my parents love. Beautiful. That's Thank you. Yes. Thank you. My question is, how did you know, you guys have both had both multiple chapters in your careers. How do you know when it was start, time to start a new chapter? Ariana, you take this. So for me, the most recent example of that was uh, deciding to leave the Huffington Post to launch Thrive. And that was definitely the hardest decision because HuffPost was like a third child. I have two daughters. And then HuffPost, um, I built it up for 12 years. And suddenly leaving it felt like I was deserting it. But I was so driven by this new mission to help people live lives um, that were um, full of everything they wanted for themselves and the world without the incredible stress and burnout that our lives have been full of. But it was still hard. And I remember I was about to announce it, we had decided. And the day before, I was like still debating it. And I called Sheryl Sandberg. And I, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm just like agonized. So she, I said, I'm agonizing it over her, over it, over the decision. And she said to me, it's not about pros and cons. Close your eyes, take a deep breath and jump. And it was absolutely right. And you know, you know when it's right, because the minute you jump, you never look back. Didn't you feel that when you left? Exactly. Like, I had a very similar experience where another woman that I respect 
affirmed me in this decision and it changed everything. I was definitely in the pro and con land, which is all logic, not a lot of heart. And the best decisions you will ever make come from here, from inside, um, from your heart space, not necessarily your head space. And so it was Ava DuVernay, actually. Remember I said I met her at the summit and she was like, come on over to my house. And I was like, great, I'll be in L.A. next week. And I actually had no plans on being in L.A., but I made plans to come to L.A. And I literally sat... I made meetings, but I made myself available for four days in L.A. And I was just like casually here whenever you want to get together. I'm out here. I was there from like Monday through Thursday and or Friday. But Thursday, Thursday, she's like, after work, do you want to get together? So I go over to her house and I talk to her about my vision for my life. You know, and then I, I had some opportunities. I had some options that I had. I presented them to her with my best pitch, like making them sound really impressive. And anyone else would have been like, that sounds great. Go for it. And I shared it with her and she just leaned back. And again, that pregnant pause. And she was like, do you want to know what I think? And I was like, oh my God, you're Ava DuVernay. Of course I want to know what you think. And I sort of felt a little bit of shame, like, oh my God, this is not a great idea. Am I making the wrong decision? And she just said, I think that the universe is calling you to be a little bit braver right now. And when she said that, immediately, the thing that I was like grappling with felt like it was a non, it was like a non-decision. There was no decision to make. The decision had been made. I need to fly. I need to be free. I need to jump and I need to take a bet on myself. It set me free. Like it absolutely set me free. And I remember the very next morning, a contract came in that I had been debating about. And when it came in my inbox, I said, I don't even need to read this. There is no amount of money in this email that could make me change my mind. I looked at Jonathan. I was like, should I just delete it? That would be so badass. But I'm like, I'm a little too curious. I just want to see. I just want to see. So I, but, I, but I checked in with myself and him before I opened it. And I made sure that I had, I had found my peace with this. It was time to turn the chapter, you know, start a new chapter. And I felt like I had truly dropped the mic. I felt like I had done it. And I never want to be someone who becomes stale in a space. I always want to be in an inspiring, exciting, scary, new face. I want to be pushing, you know, new frontiers. So to answer your question in terms of for, for you and advice for anyone, I think if you feel like your work is done, your mission is accomplished, Whether you have external validation of that or not, or you feel like your mission cannot be accomplished and you've done everything you can to try, but it just won't work in that space, give yourself permission to move on. Because if you don't, you're doing yourself a disservice and you're doing a disservice to all the people that you will impact who are counting on you to be brave enough to take a leap. Really beautiful. Okay, we'll take one last question. Yes. Hey, my name is Flavia, and my question is, you both, as creators of stories, how encourage girls to believe in education as the main source of women empowerment, as nowadays advertising and media in general is only promoting the desire of popularity and just being recognized on social media? Can you repeat the last part? Okay, so pretty much like how you motivate girls to still believing that go to school, like educate yourself, be culture is more important than be popular on social media. That is like mm. what you see every day, like girls and I mean, people in general trying to be popular and forget that there are other interesting things in life as well. Yeah. So how you are, you both are great influencers, like how you do that in your stories and talking with people. So I think there are many different ways to encourage people not to be in the process of constantly comparing themselves. I think that's the worst thing about social media because social media kind of can encourage you to keep looking over your shoulder and comparing your looks, your life, your career, your clothes to other people's. And I think that's one of the main reasons for so much of the anxiety and depression that goes on. So if we stop the comparison game, then we can just uh, be in our lives and and look at social media for as long or, or I hope as little as we want without engaging in that game. 
I would say for so many young girls, they feel like they need to choose between being smart and pretty or beautiful. And I think part of my mantra at Teen Vogue was the idea that, you know, you can be both. You can be all of who you are. Like we all contain multitudes and, you know, you can have dynamic conversations that span beauty and fashion, politics, identity, race, religion. You can have all of those conversations and, you know, on one platform. And I think seeing that was important, hopefully, in helping to change that paradigm for girls who maybe felt pressured to dumb it down or to not prioritize school or who felt like it wasn't cool to be smart. Like, I think that we're really seeing this cultural revolution happening right now among young people where young young girls, I think, are finally getting uh, getting it and getting that notion that it is actually cool to care about the world and what's happening in it and the role that they can play in changing it for the better. Yeah, I think that was kind of a, a core pillar as far as what the work that we did at Teen Vogue. And hopefully on my Instagram, to the extent that I'm influencing anyone, they can see that I'm definitely multifaceted. And I will post something from a Martin Luther King speech one day to like show you like my cute outfit that I'm wearing to this event because I think it looks cute, you know? And, and then, you know, switch over and talk about something that regarding my family. I think it's important that we show all of ourselves. We show more of ourselves and when, that we don't feel the need to fit into a box. I love that. And one of the campaigns we started at Thrive that I would love you to join is we wanted to take some of the pressure off of women especially, and not to feel that they have to wear a new outfit for every occasion. So we launched this campaign that we call Hashtag Repeat. And it doesn't mean your outfit can't be gorgeous and beautiful and everything, but don't feel that you have to change it for every occasion. So last night at the Time 100 dinner, I deliberately wore the same dress that I had worn last year at the Time 100 dinner. And actually, I wore at the White House Correspondents' Dinner as well. And I think women will also have a major competitive advantage when they allow themselves to do that. Because right now, men, just think of it. Think how little time they spend getting dressed. Not just if you're in Silicon Valley and you just wear a hoodie, but even if you wear a suit and a tie, you change the tie, you change the shirt, and if you wear the same suit uh, for a month, nobody notices or cares. So I, I just kind of know you have this favorite pair of white boots that you wear a lot on Instagram, so I love that. So do an occasional hashtag repeat. Um, I did that for you today. <laughs> I didn't wear my white boots only because I left them at my office, but I wore this outfit and already Instagrammed this outfit two days ago. And I was, as I was like trying to get ready to, to leave, I was like, what, what, am I, what am I gonna wear? And I started down that spiral of, oh no, oh, what have I not already worn on social media? And I thought, this is a woman who is starting a revolution that makes it okay to hashtag repeat your outfits on Instagram. I am totally wearing the cutest outfit I wore this week all over again. So I did this for you. so great because it's a small, it's a, it's exactly. in, it's in, it is anxiety provoking and there are these little decisions that we have to make throughout the day and how great is it to just release this decision making space to just like actually do something more productive right Especially with that time and that you have this uh, i mean you have some that you love you know you look great in it it's yeah. hanging there put it on and move on and so i, I think that. it's going to be just great when more and more women do that until one day we'll wake up and think Oh my God, I can't imagine. I was so worried about not repeating an outfit. So, Elaine, thank you so much for being our guest. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for coming. And thanks to all of you listening to our podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global Podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app. And stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on new episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. Thank you so much.
The Thrive Global Podcast is grateful to our sponsor, Sleep Number. If you aren't sleeping well, it could be your mattress. The Sleep Number bed lets you adjust each side to your ideal comfort, and it contours to your head, neck, shoulders, and hips, relieving pressure points. Discover the difference at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. 